that pursues me with his love haunts me with each hearing of his softly spoken words my conscience a reminder of forgiveness that I it to me who is this king of angels oh blessed prince of peace revealing things of heaven and all its mysteries
is the theme of my song, the joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue. Thy free grace alone, from the first to the last, hath won my affections and bound my soul Mercy and pardon 
out of the way you're still sleepy oh now you're not right all right well good morning how's everybody this morning good good all right well we're finishing out our chapter in uh, in our book big truths for young hearts uh, on God's control over creation and so kind of as the last part uh, before we get into the next section um, We'll talk about suffering and, 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 and this question of suffering. If God's in control and God's good, no, we've talked about all these things about God being in control of his creation, how that's good and our responsibility. But what about suffering? Now, what is suffering? Anybody want to answer that? What's, what does suffering mean? Yes. Means you're dying? Okay, that can be a, that's an extreme form of suffering. Okay, all right. What else? Hang on just a minute. Yep. What, did you want to add to that? Okay, okay, yep. Hey, Grace, what do you got? Okay, something where you hurt really, really bad. Okay, absolutely. Okay, you could be bleeding, right? How many of you ever gotten a splinter before? Did Okay, just there you go. All right, did that hurt? Did you like it? No. How many, how many of you want a splinter again? No, no, you don't want a splinter. That hurts, okay? That's, that's a very simple form of suffering, okay? It's painful. It's I don't like that. I don't want that. Okay? You don't you don't want that to happen. It hurts. Okay? Now, there's other ways that you can suffer. Just a minute, okay? There's other ways that you can suffer. Okay? Somebody makes fun of you, right? Somebody say, calls you a bad name or they tease you, okay? Now, that doesn't hurt your skin, does it? Where does that hurt? Hurts your feelings? Yeah, it hurts, hurts inside, right? It's a different type of suffering, but it's still suffering, right? It's painful. It hurts you. Okay, so this question of, well, if God's good, then why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Okay, that's a really good question, and that's a hard question to answer. It's a lot of questions that a lot of adults really struggle with. Okay, well, real quick, let me give you five ways to think about suffering. Okay, I'm going to give you five ways to think about it. Okay, now I'm, I mentioned this morning announcements uh, to you and to your parents about our weekly devotional that we'll put out. So uh, a lot of the things that I'm going to mention you guys can talk about this with uh, with your family and look, maybe look at some scriptures about how does God use suffering for, for our good, okay? So let me give you five points, five thing, things to think about, okay? So m- number one, suffering is not in itself something good that la- uh, uh, something that's good that lasts forever, okay? When God created the world, he said it's what? He says it's good. Right? He said it's good. And when Jesus returns, do you know what he's going to do? Do you know what he says he's going to do? He's going to wipe away every tear. There'll be no more sickness, no more death, no more crying, no more pain. Isn't that good? Isn't that wonderful? No more splinters, right? No more death. That's wonderful. That's wonderful news. I can't imagine what that's like, but I'm excited. Okay? So that's good for us to know that any suffering that we might go through or somebody we see goes through really terrible pain or goes through really t- a really tough time, now, we can be encouraged that that suffering's not going to last forever, okay? That Jesus will do away with that, uh, with, with that suffering. For anyone who trusts in Christ, have to put their hope in him, he promises, he says, I will, I'm going to take away that pain and suffering, okay? If not right now, I will do it when I return. And that's good. That's encouraging for us, that God doesn't intend for any pain, any suffering for his children 
to, to last forever, okay? All right, number two, okay, suffering is oftentimes planned by God to bring about good, okay? May, he, may, he may use suffering as a discipline, okay, to discipline someone who's, who's sinning, okay? He may use suffering as a way to bring someone back to him. C.S. Lewis, a great theologian, an older theologian, he, he was known for saying that suffering and pain, those are God's megaphone. How many of you know what a megaphone is? You know what a megaphone is? Yep, you, 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 you want to talk to somebody who's very far away, you get somebody's attention who's not listening to you, you might use a megaphone, okay? C.S. Lewis said suffering and pain, that's God's megaphone, something that he can use to bring people back to himself who aren't paying attention to him otherwise, Okay, so God doesn't uh, will use he'll plan and he'll use suffering for uh, to bring about good. All right. Number three, God has promised his children that everything in their lives, everything, even suffering will be used for their good. Okay, isn't that encouraging? Isn't that encouraging that even if you that if you're going through something really hard, God says, I'm not left you. If you know Jesus, if you trust in him. Then, then you're my child, and I'm not left you. That I'm going to bring about good for you, even in the midst of this really hard time that you're going through. That's good to know that a good God is looking over you, and that He's not going to leave you, right? And then number four, God's more concerned with our character than our comfort. You know, He's more concerned about your holiness than with your happiness. Okay, because you may be going through. Uh, suffering, you say, well, how can this be good? I'm not happy right now. When you got a splinter, were you happy? No, no. So, well, I'm not happy right now. Okay, but God's more concerned about your character. What is character? Anybody, what does character mean? Okay, that's good. Wait, yeah, go ahead. Okay, we think of character as somebody in a movie. Okay, but there's another way that character can be used. Okay, how you act, your personality, who you are on the inside, okay, who you are when nobody's looking. Now, that can be who you are when somebody's looking, but we all know we can put on a, a mask, right, and pretend to be somebody that we're not, right, in front of other people. But our character is who we are you know, on the inside, who we are when no one's looking. God's more concerned about that and that our character reflects who Jesus is, Okay. And that's oftentimes, that's the main chief good that he's aiming at. And so when we go through suffering, he may be using that to make us more like Christ. Okay? All right, and then the last one, number five. We should pray for God to remove our suffering while we also pray for God to help us accept our suffering. Do you know Paul said once to the Corinthians, he wrote him and he said, you know, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. He gave me like a splinter. Okay, he, he gave me this. He gave me this event, this thing that I was wrestling with, and I, I, it was so painful. It was so hard for me, and I prayed three times, okay? Do you think Paul was serious about this, about God wanting to remove his suffering? Yes, yeah, I don't want this. Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. Lord, take it away. And then he stopped praying for it when God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul Stop praying for it because God gave him the answer. What was the answer? Was the answer, yep, you're gonna, I'm going to take this away from you. No, he said, no, you're going to continue with this. But Paul accepted the answer, even though it was hard. And he said, better that God be exalted in my life, that God's power would be made perfect in my own weakness. 
That's hard to say, isn't it? That's really hard to say. So Paul prayed that the suffering would be removed, but he also prayed, you know, Lord, help me accept this suffering while it's here. Help me learn from it. Help me grow closer to you Why, as long as this is here. Okay, because as long as it's here, God's doing some good. He's really doing some good. You may not see it in the moment, but he's doing some good, and he won't remove it until the good's completed or until he's ready to show you what that good is. Okay? All right. Well, thank you, guys. Let me pray for us, okay? And then you guys can go back to your seats. Father God, Lord, we thank you. Thank you that you're sovereign over all creation. You're sovereign over all things that are good. For every good and perfect gift comes from your hand. And, Father, you are sovereign over all evil and all suffering. And that, Father, you will plan and use suffering for the good of your children. That we might not be lacking in any good thing, as the psalmist says. So, Father, we praise you for your wisdom. We praise you for your mercy, even in granting us suffering. Grant us faith and, and wisdom to see and understand things that we don't in the midst of struggle and trial. Father, pray for these young ears that they would hear your word, that they would absorb it, and that it would grow them in the grace and knowledge of you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. I'm going to um, share with you guys a card that we received um, from the Boyers. Joey and I have been able to email with them. Um, last October was a year ago is when we um, went to visit in Ireland. And um, we've been able to keep up with them and Skype with them. Um, we're actually going to be Skyping with them again today. Um, but this is a card from them to Haven Ridge. Thank you so much for your continued support and prayers as we serve in Ireland. We couldn't be here without you, and we are so thankful to God for you. During the first three months of COVID, Ireland was on a very strict lockdown, so we had to switch gears. And rather than having people in our home, we met them within the neighborhood and checked on our elderly neighbors and church members. Now that restrictions have lifted some, we are able to meet as a church again, although in smaller numbers and taking mandatory government precautions. We have focused on ministering to the elderly here in particular, in which are at higher risk, visiting them, taking them groceries, etc. Please pray for our neighbors as we continue to minister and share the gospel with them. Pray for our January visa expiration um, and God's guidance and clarity on our next steps. We hope you are all staying safe and that your faith is being made stronger during this season. Um, so I know they, they've particular, particularly asked us to pray for them um, as they're trying to um, get their visa extended so that they can stay, um, but they haven't heard word about that yet. So that would be January that they would have to do something different. So if we can pray for, for God's provision there. I also reached out to Candy, who came about a year ago and shared um, with us. She's a missionary that we support in Bangladesh through prayer. Um, she is actually back in Greenville. She's been back here um, with COVID. That was when she moved back here. I'm going to stand with her mom, and I'm going to meet her this week and see if there's um, a time that she could come and share with us again. Um, but she did send me some specific prayer, prayer requests from um, the ward that we committed to pray for, Kilket. I think I'm saying that correctly, and the pastor there is Pastor Bipal. So I'll just kind of briefly, and I'll try to post these because they're pretty detailed um, for us to be praying for. Um, for the church particularly, their landlord, um, they're not sure if they're going to be able to, to stay in their, um, in their 
church and the, the pastor and his family actually live at the church. So if we can pray that they will um, be able to stay there, they may have to end, leave at the end of De- December and they don't really have another building to go to. Um, also, their kids' church has not started back up, um, similar to ours. Um, but they have started meeting again. They were Zooming during COVID, but they've started meeting again. Um, she did say several of the church members lost their jobs and do not have enough money to buy food. Um, uh, and then the pastor has shared the gospel with two Muslims and one Hindu man, two of which accepted Christ. So uh, definitely a praise um, for the work that the Lord's doing there. Um, and then Candy said personal prayer request for her is that God will give her wisdom when she should return um, and just know how to do ministry in this new normal what, that we're all all trying to figure out right now. Um, and that also that God would provide her with some deep friendships as um, they were uh, there were families that she had been close to that are no longer in Bangladesh. Um, just so community for her that we can pray for that. Um, so if we can pray for those things. Um, and I also wanted to share, just this week I was reading um, in Second Timothy um, 6, and I just wanted to share a couple of verses um, for us as a church. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you've been called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Um, And in my Bible, it's a Hebrew study Bible and Greek study Bible. And when I looked up those words, fight, it said, strive earnestly, exert oneself, labor and toil in behalf of the cause of Christ. Um, it's almost the image of running a marathon or fighting um, a battle, that, that that's the way we are to, to live um, the Christian life. And the good fight, what is that? That's the race of life, which is full of toil, um, but to have an unwearied zeal in promoting the spread of the gospel. So just in thinking about how we're supposed to live, that was just really challenging to me that um, to have that that imagery of it's not going to be easy, but we fight, and it's a good fight that we're fighting. Um, and then in thinking of that, Galatians 6, 9 came to mind, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Um, and I, I was really encouraged to hear the story of our neighbor because we've really been through COVID building relationships within our neighborhood and our community, and just to see God give like that clear opportunity and just just that we'll continue to pray that he'll open doors and that people will come and ask us why we have the hope and that that we will be prepared and ready to share that. So lots of things to pray for, but um, let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we just, we thank you so much for, um, for the gospel, Lord, and for the hope that we have, Lord, for the joy that we can have, for the peace in you, Lord, and um I just pray for each one here, Lord, that we would um, we would just grow in our love for you, um, that you would be our focus, that you would just wake us up in the morning, um, just ready to spend time in your presence, Lord. And I know there's times that we feel so empty and we feel so weak, Lord. I've heard that from other people here as well as myself, Lord. And um, I, I just thank you for that encouragement and that reminder, Lord, that 
um, that you fill us up with your spirit um, when we come to you empty um, and that you um, you just give us the strength that we need um, and that you say that when when we're weak then you're strong Lord and your glory is displayed um, even brighter Lord just thank you for um, the mission field that each of us have Lord whether it's teaching our kids at home um, whether it's our neighborhood um, if it's our work Lord if for the teachers that are represented in our body Lord they're their students and their co-workers the other teachers Lord um, this is a hard time for everyone Lord and but it's also such a huge opportunity that we can um, just display the gospel and just shine even brighter in the darkness Lord and so I just pray that you would um, just put that on the forefront of our minds Lord that this is a fight um, but it's a good fight and that you've equipped us for it for the good work that you have in sharing the gospel Lord and that that would just just take root in our hearts, Lord, and that that would, would you just give us that perspective um, every day, Lord. And I pray for the Boyers and for Eunice in Ireland, Lord. Um, I just pray that you would, I pray the same prayer for them, Lord, that you would just in, embolden them, you would give them strength, Lord. I thank you for the relationships that they're building with their neighbors, for their hospitality, just their heart to love people and, and show them your love through their hospitality, I just pray that you'd, and, and for the elderly that they're ministering to, that you would just, again, give them opportunities to share the hope that they have and to share the gospel, Lord. Um, particularly for the Boyers, we just pray for your provision, Lord, that you would just do a supernatural work in, um, in their visa, Lord, that there would you, they would have favor with the government officials, Lord, and that they would just be able to stay there. I know that's where their heart is, and I know that you've given them that heart for the Irish, Lord, and that they've started these relationships. So I just pray that you would continue that work and you would provide. Um, and, Lord, we pray for um, for China as well, Lord, for Doug and Lauren, Lord, that you, I'm not sure where they're at right now, but um, you do, Lord, and you know exactly what they need. So I just pray that you'd meet their every need and um, continue to open doors for them there. Um and Lord, for Candy and for Bangladesh and Kilket, Lord, and Pastor by Paul, um, you you know all of their um, their needs, their church's need. Just pray that you would continue to provide for them and um, and meet their physical needs, Lord, and also their spiritual needs. And um, I just thank you for the work that you're doing. That there are people that are um, that are turning to you, Muslim and Hindu, um, that are proclaiming you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, and. We just thank you for that encouragement that we hear the work that you're doing around the world and that we're able to partner with them through our prayers. Um, I just thank you again for this day and thank you that we are able to meet here um, and to praise you and glorify you in our lives. In your name I pray, amen. Compared to this, knowing 
surpassing gift of righteousness. Knowing you, Jesus, knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my All right, let's pray. Father God, Lord, it is our heart's desire this morning to know you and to be known by you, to gain by faith what we could not earn, access into your presence, a robe of righteousness that is given to us by our great high priest and king, Jesus Christ. Father, that is our desire. As we come to this point in our service, we open your word. I ask that you would speak to our hearts. Make us more like Jesus, Father. Bless Alan as he comes. Give him clarity and wisdom as he brings to us your truths. Move in our hearts, each where we need it, that we might be better equipped and better emboldened to walk in faith today, tomorrow, and the next day. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. But you can turn to John chapter 16. 
John chapter 16, starting in verse 12. So John 16 through verse, I'm sorry, John 16, 12 through verse 24. So we will move through this text. There's not a lot to really uh, unpack from this text. There's a, a riddle <laughs> at the beginning and then an explanation of the riddle. But there's really one specific area that I want to zero in on in just a moment. So if you're at the book of John, chapter 16, verses 16, we'll begin reading there. Sorry, um, I think I said starting in verse 12. Let's start in verse 16, okay? So just a little bit of a context. Jesus is still in that upper room. We're probably hours away from Jesus going into the garden you know, being betrayed by Judas officially. So, so we're coming down to the wire. So he's, what we read, we've seen several chapters of this upper room encounter between Christ and his disciples. Judas has already been outed as a betrayer. And he has left the scene and Jesus continues to dialogue and teach his disciples. He tells them hard things. Uh, he gives them big pills that are hard to swallow and he continues to do these things here, starting in verse 16. So this, is, this reads kind of strangely, so just stay with me. A little while, Jesus says, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to, said to one another, what is it that he says to us? A little while, and you will see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Because I am going to the Father. What does he mean by this? They're saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus picked up on this. Of course, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. So Jesus is picking up on this. Just a recap here so that we're not reading all this again right now. Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. He's already told them that he's going to be leaving. He's already told them these things. He just told them that I'm going to give you the helper, so this should not come as a surprise to the disciples. If the disciples knew at all their scripture, which they probably knew it to a degree, they would know that these things have been foretold. If they are banking on him as the Messiah, then there has to be some expectation from the disciples that something's about to transpire, something's about to go down. So so it's hard to, to look at this and say they're completely aloof, they're completely disconnected from all of this, and yet they're still asking these questions. Jesus is still speaking to them in riddles, and they're still a bit confused. So Jesus, and I want to point this out, Jesus showing great compassion to them, Jesus desiring that they are comforted because he knows what's just around the corner for them, he gives them further explanation of what he's talking about. So... Verse 20, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And he explains, he says, listen, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, amen, ladies, because her hour has come. Husbands, if, if your wife gets pregnant I encourage you to use this language. Has the hour come, honey? Is the hour. The hour is nigh, you know. Um, ladies, you are tremendous. I, 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 I would have no children. I would have no children. That's just what it would be. 
I don't do pain well at all. So when a woman is giving birth, Jesus says, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. The anguish, ladies, right? For joy that a human being has been born into the world. You know, when my wife <laughs> had children, I, I was going to say past her children, like it's a kidney stone or something. Um, when my wife had our, had our babies, I'm sorry, I'm terrible. When my wife had our babies, I thought, surely, after watching that, I'm like, that's it. That's it. I mean, I got, I got one, I got, a, I got a son out of the deal, and we're, we're good. We're good, right? And then she goes back for more. I'm like, what's wrong with you? You know, have you lost your mind? You know, the anguish there is in having a child physically. But then Jesus says, for joy, for joy that a human being has been born, that, that disappears. It's, it's no longer remembered. There's, there's, the comparison is almost, there's such a contrast between the, the comparison as how he explains it. And then he says, and he relates it back to what he's trying to explain to them. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one, no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. So today, I want to talk about joy and sorrow. So here's the objective, to understand more of your relationship, to understand more of the believer's relationship to both sorrow and to joy. Now, it's interesting, Jesus says here in context, no one can take your joy. He's speaking salvifically, right? He's speaking of the fact that Jesus is going to die, he's going to rise again, he's going to conquer death. No one can undo that, no one can take that away from them. So that's a joy that is established by Jesus and his work and the power of the resurrection, and that is a joy that is established by those things that no one can take away. What this scripture is not intending to say is that you will never have sorrow in your life because you very much will have sorrow in your life on and on and on in our lives we have a front row seat to the horrors that are a broken world and so yeah we have sorrows but there's also a joy that is provided that cannot be taken from you so i want to walk through and look at some aspects of this joy as it relates immediately to this context and as it relates to you and to me. So this should be very practical, very applicable for you today, uh, not to minimize your intelligence, but today is low-hanging fruit. Today is something that's easily attainable. So let's look at a few things here. First of all, what Jesus tells them after he gives them this riddle, he tells them, listen, you will be sorrowful. There will be lamenting in your life. There will be hardship that comes because I'm going to die. And you and I have the privilege of hindsight. You and I have the 2,000 years of separation. You and I have the, the, the privilege of seeing that Jesus, well before we arrived on the scene, that Jesus fulfilled his promises so we don't deal with the sorrow of the death of Christ like these disciples are about to deal with. We have a different vantage point from them. They're looking at pre-cross. They're looking pre-crucifixion. All the horrors that were the crucifixion are just now about to come to reality for them, and they're going to witness this firsthand. So, of course, there's going to be lamenting. 
of course there's going to be sorrow. For the disciples, the entire way of life, you have to understand this. Understand the context rightly here. The disciples are going into this from a Jewish context where the teaching was that one day the Messiah is going to come. So their lives has been centered around this idea that there's a Messiah that's coming, that someone is going to come. He's going he's to save the world for those who believe. He's going he's gonna to do these things. So they're, from, from the time that they were little boys, they were exposed to this teaching. And now, three years journeying with Christ, they're just about convinced that he's actually who he says that he is. They're still wrestling. They're still struggling with some things. Because they're asking him things like, where, where are you going that we can't go with you? Where are you going? I mean, they're stressing over this. Because they're coming into their own right now. We have the privilege. We can't look at the disciples and say, my goodness, why don't you just believe? It's easy for us to say that because what have we seen? We've seen 2,000 years after this promise was fulfilled. So we have, we have all this confidence but the disciples have a different vantage point. Jesus is telling them he's going to leave, not just leave, but he's going to leave by way of death. He's not just going to vanish or disappear. He's going to die, and he's going to die horrifically, and they would witness all these things. They would see an innocent man, the Lamb of God, die a guilty man's death. Imagine yourself watching someone you know to be innocent suffer horror and shame when you know they're innocent and you can't do a thing to stop it? Would that not bring about sorrow in your life? I mean, this is, what, this is what they're witnessing. Jesus dying a guilty man's death, a shameful death, a humiliating death as they would typically strip him of clothes. Now, Jesus was most likely, he was wrapped with a shroud of Turin afterwards and he's placed in, but Typically, the condemned individual on the cross was stripped completely naked so that they were absolutely exposed and shamed and humiliated before everyone. Of course, there's sorrow. Listen, have you ever watched someone suffer? I mean, really, have you watched someone suffer? It could be psychologically. It could be physically. Have you watched someone suffer? If you have to any degree, but especially to greater degrees, then you understand a bit of what it's like to find sorrow in watching someone suffering. Because you can't do anything about it. And so it's hard to watch these things unfold. It's hard to watch that when my wife, and, and we both, my wife and I, we count this as something minor in terms of suffering, but when she was diagnosed with arthritis, I mean, there's a, a form of suffering that she goes through in her life. She takes, she takes a cancer medication to help stave off the, the, the progression of her arthritis, and it makes her feel unwell a lot of the time. So there's a, 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 a bit of suffering, and you better believe if I could do something about it, I would, but I have to stay back and watch in the wings because I can't physically change a thing with regards to her experience. And there's sorrow. It's not as great as the sorrow that they would encounter, but it's still sorrow. So we all are familiar with this idea of sorrow. It's awful. If you watched a loved one suffer, if you have, then you've experienced sorrow. But imagine the degree to which sorrow met these disciples. They wouldn't just see an innocent man die, but they would see an innocent man die in the way and the fashion that he died. I mean, 39 lashings by a scourging. This is after spending an evening where they slept and he prayed in the garden. 
where his sweat became like drops of blood because of the high, high volumes of stress that he's experiencing. It's called hematidrosis. It really happens. It really happened for him. His pores secreted blood as opposed to sweat because of the stress. Why do you think he cries out? Why do you think he cries out and he says, hey, if there be in any other way, could it be that way? Let this cup pass from me. So the disciples are watching this. They watch him go through the scourging. They watch him go through the mocking. They watch, watch him go through the shame. They watch him become devalued. As the king of every man and every woman, every boy and girl looking at him, they all devalued him. Those that did not believe. And they watch this. So yeah, they're going to encounter some sorrow. But they wouldn't just watch the devaluing of Jesus. They wouldn't just watch the minimizing of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, but they would watch a world, as John says, a world rejoice around Christ's suffering. They would watch that. What if you're watching your loved one suffer? What if you're watching your loved one suffer horrendously from cancer, and then there's a group of people that rally around and rejoice at your loved one's suffering? How would you feel about that? Now maybe you start to see a little bit about where the disciples or what the disciples will experience in terms of suffering, in terms of their lamentation. Now the disciples have to wait. They've watched Jesus pass. They've watched Jesus die. They've watched him murdered on a cross. They've watched these things happen. And now comes more of the sorrow. Now comes more of the mental turmoil because now they have to wait and see what's going to happen. What's going to happen with regard to the promises that Jesus has made with regards to his return? Do you understand that if Jesus doesn't do what he said he was going to do in three days, all bets are off. All promises are null and void and everything else has zero meaning. Three years of their lives wasted. You understand that? So they're waiting on pins and needles. What's going to happen? Matter of fact, they go back to their jobs, go back to fishing and Jesus comes out and finds them. So this is a big, stressful deal for them. No wonder Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to go. You're going to lament and you're going to weep. You're going to have tremendous sorrow and anguish in your life. But it's, it's going to be turned into joy. So, so hold fast because things are going to change. Maybe you've had to wait for something before, like a passing grade. Let's, let's start at the bottom. You've waited for a passing grade. Remember, remember your days of being a student? Maybe you studied hard, maybe you didn't, and maybe you're waiting to get this test score back, and maybe that test score really was going to make the difference whether you could continue playing ball or whether you had to repeat the seventh grade or something like that. You're waiting. You're anxious. You're nervous. I mean, I've turned in just about well, a large majority, especially in my high school career, of turning in stuff was like, this is going to make or break me. It seemed like everything was make or break me. You know, when you ride, the, when you ride that bottom D line, anything can take, you, can, can take you down, right? Right? So, and we were not on a 10-point grading scale where, you know, like a 30 is an A. So, anyway, it's a, it's a different deal. It's a different situation. Now, imagine the disciples waiting to see what's going to happen with regards to Christ's promise to them. Because if he doesn't, if he doesn't come through, you know what he's not? He's not the Messiah. So I'm just trying to paint this picture for you so you can see kind of what this is like for them and why Jesus would say, listen, truly I say to you, you will weep and you will lament. 
You will watch me die. You will watch me suffer. But there's going to be joy. Why can he promise them joy? Because he's going to raise after three days. But if Jesus didn't raise, we've got a problem. What if he remained in the grave? All those teachings, promises would have been nothing. Three years, as I said, down the drain. But here's the reality, and this is not what this, term, this sermon is about, but Jesus would rise from the dead, and he would establish their joy. That's why he makes this promise. Is you will have joy, and it's a joy, verse 22, that will not be taken away from you. You will have lamenting, you will weep, you will have some anguish and turmoil, but I will turn that into joy. Now, this is important for you to understand. Because you and I can experience joy and sorrow simultaneously. This is the way of life. We have joy salvifically. We have a joy that has been secured for us through the gospel of Jesus. But we also have sorrow. The beauty of joy, real, lasting, eternal, salvific joy, is that it transcends our worldly, earthly sorrow. So this is a good thing, but it doesn't mean that we are without sorrow in this life. And I hope that this comes as an encouragement to you because maybe, maybe you're somebody that says, you know what, sometimes I struggle to find joy. What does that mean of me spiritually? If the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and all of the others, but I struggle to find joy, what does that mean of me? What does it mean that I am depressed a lot of the time? Does it mean that I'm not in Christ because I struggle to find joy? No, I'm not saying that. I'm trying to bring comfort to you through God's word and letting you see that you will have sorrow, but you also be given a joy that cannot be taken away from you. Listen, this joy here, though, specifically in context, we'll get to the application of joy in just a minute, but understand when Jesus says in verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. This is important for you to understand. It's not that I will give you a greater joy that will be stronger than your sorrow. It's that I will take that sorrow and it will transform to something different. The source at which they found great grief would become the same source at which they find great joy. Do you understand that? This is so important for you to understand. The root cause of their grief would become the root cause of their joy. And the gospel makes all the difference. Because it's one thing for us to watch someone pass from this life to death. We watch that happen. I've stood at the head of I don't know how many caskets in my ministry career. I've seen this happen over and over, and there's always sorrow accompanied with that. And it doesn't matter if they're in heaven or if they're in hell. There's always sorrow because we miss their company. We miss their presence. You can't get away from that. But Jesus says here, that which you grieved over, the source, the root, that same root will be the root of your joy. Again, you and I experience joy and sorrow both simultaneously, but in this text specifically, he's saying that sorrow, that grief, that will be turned into joy. The disciples aren't celebrating yet the death of Christ, yet. When they are sorrowful, that's that's not their celebration. But when Jesus says, but your sorrow will be turned to joy, that's when they can celebrate not just the resurrection, not just the life of Christ, but the death of Christ as well. 
Remember, Jesus did say to them, listen, I'm going to go to the Father, and that is to your advantage. But the way through which Jesus goes back to the Father is through what? Death. It didn't just vanish. We're not Muslims. We don't hold to swoon theory where they took Jesus as he was alive off the cross, and he just went about his merry way and one day just did his thing. No, we believe that Jesus actually died on the cross. We believe that he became the ultimate sacrifice. We believe that all the Old Testament sacrificial system where animals really died, Jesus, Jesus was finally the great success as far as a sacrifice. No more need of types or shadows because Jesus fulfilled all these things. And he goes to the Father. A part of the beauty of Christianity, what sets us apart in many ways, is that what typically serves as a cause for someone's sorrow, being death, provides for us a cause for celebration, specifically Jesus. We don't make habits of celebrating death, do we? Sure, we have celebration of life services. Someone passes. We have a celebration of life. It's a dark time. It's a hard time. But we say, let's celebrate their life. And that's great. We want to say, hey, they, there's the legacy that they leave behind. I've talked about many, many, many people and their legacies while looking at people who are mourning over the loss of a loved one. And we do. We celebrate. We say, hey, their life was well lived, especially if they're a follower of Christ. We can celebrate the fact that they have run their race and that they have achieve this crown so that they can give to Jesus all these things that the apostle talks about. We can celebrate that. But there's still sorrow because we miss that loved one. But in this case, it's not the way it is. I want to be very clear. When it comes to Jesus, Christians aren't sorrowful over the death of Christ. We celebrate the death of Christ. We don't just celebrate the life of Jesus, having conquered death. We celebrate the death of Christ, not as in we're glad he's died because we're masochistic or because we're murderous or because we're vile, but because we knew that in order for us to have life, it absolutely required his death. So we, in thanks, celebrate the death of Jesus, but also the life of Jesus, which is the gospel. You see, death, this is where Jesus met the demands of the law. He substituted himself, and he appeased the wrath of God. That didn't happen in his life. That happened in his death. What do you think when we sing songs about the blood of Jesus? What are we celebrating? <laughs> death. What about his life? This is where Jesus broke the sting of death and secured our justification. Without death, there is no appeasement of wrath. Without life, there is no justification. There is no victory. We celebrate his death, his life. Total package is the gospel. This is why it was to their advantage that Jesus goes to the Father. Because in order to get there, he had to first die. So then we move kind of to more of our application, the joy that we experience now. We have salvific joy. We have that. We have the joy that's rooted in the death and the resurrection of Jesus that's rooted in the gospel. We have that. But I would submit to you that what we experience now is only a fraction of the joy that is to come. And I make this argument from humanity. The Bible talks about the fullness of joy a lot, but I do believe that while we can experience real, true joy now, maybe even the fullness of joy meaning as full as you can as a broken vessel, you can have joy. You can have a complete joy, and joy is tethered to what? Hope. If there's no hope, there's no real joy. 
See, believers experience joy now, but, but now is also the crucible that will bring about a fuller and a more complete joy. The Bible promises joy. John 15, 11, to stay in a close context. These things I've spoken to you, Jesus says, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. John 16, 24, just a few verses uh, ahead here. Ask and you will receive that what? Your joy may be full. Fruits of the Spirit, love, joy. So joy is promised. We can live in joy. I have to be very careful because I have not a fatalistic worldview, but, 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 but I, I, I see darkness all around me, and, and it can be cumbersome, which we'll get to in a moment. But I have to remind myself, listen, I'm a sojourner. There's something waiting. I have joy now. I have joy in the hope that is secured through the gospel of Jesus. So that's why I can persevere. That's why I can keep going. That's why I cannot become undone or overrun, demoralized, or fall into despair because of all the junk that I see or all the junk that I experience or hear. I mean, I'm watching, I'm watching as these guys are at the abortion mill yesterday with this belligerent, volatile lady screaming in their face. I thought she was about to you know, do something horrible to, to, to somebody, more than with just her words. And I think it, it would be, it's, it's, it's seeing things like this, it makes it so easy to stay home. It makes it so easy for these guys or girls or women or, that are out there to say, you know what, it, it's not worth this. Why do, why, why do I have to tolerate this junk? If there were not the hope and the promise of joy, if there were not these realities, why in the world would we continue doing these things? Although we experience a degree or a measure of joy now, I don't believe it's what it's going to be fully when we are completed. Let me read a few things. Although we experience a degree of measure of joy, I think it's going to be so much more. Let's be honest. How many of you sometimes find that you struggle to find joy? You have to convince yourself that there's a reason to be joyful from time to time. What about when you look at the world around us and you see all the broken there is? Where's your joy then? It's not in what you see, but what you hope for. If you are resting in words of affirmation or your, your, your spouse knock a home run every day, you know, in terms of the relationship dynamic, if, if that's what you're leaning on for your joy, you will be sorely disappointed because joy is something that's rooted in something so much deeper than a, a, a relationship that's not your relationship to Jesus. I think modicums of joy can be found in those things as common graces that God has given. But our ultimate joy is rooted in the gospel and fully experienced when we are complete. The joy we do indeed have now is tightly tethered to hope. You can't divorce present joy from hope. The source of your joy is the hope secured by the gospel that says we will spend our eternity with God. Without future hope, present joy cannot exist. Not salvific joy, not eternal joy anyway. True lasting joy cannot exist in a Christless scenario. I think the West Westminster Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism, specifically in 1646, I think they hit the nail on the head and this is a reformed catechism. And they wrote, the question one, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You don't enjoy anything without joy. And although that's not the Bible, the Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism, 
It is an absolute truth derived from the Bible. That you can't separate the glory of God from the joy of men. I mean, again, this is not from Bible, but Piper, one of his most quotable phrases is, God is most satisfied in you when you are most, uh, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Being satisfied in God is to have joy in God. If the chief end of man is to truly love God and enjoy him forever, then the optimal context for this completely is in the context of eternity, I would argue. Psalm 37, 4 makes it clear, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm, and it says, he will give you the desires of your heart. But this idea is that we're continually delighting ourselves, finding joy in God. Joy that can be found in this broken world, in this broken humanity, in these earthen vessels, right? Psalm 118, 24, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us what? Rejoice and be glad in it every day, every day we're given. Find joy, find a reason to celebrate Celebrate the day because it's the day that the Lord has made. That is joy in God. Our greatest capacity for joy is when we are completed. He who began a good work in you will be faithful until its day of completion. All that we endure now, I believe, is creating within us a greater capacity for joy. I've heard that quoted before. 2 Corinthians four seventeen and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I think that necessarily means that there's a joy that we can experience on that day. Especially compared to what we have today. Our deepest and purest expression and experience of joy is when the sin nature is stripped away. And we are equipped to more fully see and savor Christ. I don't think anybody would argue against me in this room that on that day we can love God more fully. We can worship Him more adequately, more completely than we can here and now. When we arrive at whatever heaven becomes, the new heavens and new earth, you know, however that's all set up, you know, if there's a worship service on this day, if we're in the garden this day, however all these things come to pass, when we arrive at whatever we're doing and we're doing these things for the glory of God, I do believe that it will be a fuller expression of our gratitude, our love, and a better expression of what we understand to be the value and the worth of Jesus than what we have right now because we're broken. And that's something that should secure our joy. The fact that God even accepts what I offer him now is beyond my mind. And he accepts it. He inhabits the praises of his people, albeit broken and, and, and inconsistent and hypocritical and false. But one day, one day he will accept them and they will be given to him as they finally should be. And this is something that should bring us joy. We're sojourners. This means that this world as we know it is not our home. We're foreigners. We're strangers. And it makes sense to me that our fullness of joy is not going to be in a place that's not our home. I mean, those of you that travel a good bit or those of you that's been away from home for a while, there's just something about being back home. We like going, we like doing, but when we're back home, it's just something different. And not to romanticize or, or to create... Um, I've lost, my, I've lost, I've lost the, the, the word there, uh, but... I think the greatest joy is going to be whenever all things are fulfilled, all things are complete, at the great consummation of all things. 
So listen, Jesus says, your sorrow will be turned into joy. There will be a transformation. The source of which you grieved or from which you grieved will then be the same source from which you find joy. But another thing we have to acknowledge about joy, and then we'll finish with application, is this. The object of our joy will ultimately become the object of the world's sorrow. You see, the world rejoices, especially in this text when the disciples lamented and wept over the death of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus. The world celebrates it and rejoices it. The world celebrates things now that one day, on that day, they will stand before God and they will weep and they will lament. And so the source of their joy will become the source of their grief. You see how that flips on itself? Even Luke talked about this. He said, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And where we have great reason for joy, we also now have great reason for sorrow because we look at those who have delight now that will soon become sorrow. And that should bring us sorrow. So this is more for the people that are listening online and for whoever it may apply to in this room. Understand that there are promises made here and we celebrate these promises, but one promise we can't overlook is the promise that if you celebrate the dark things now, those will be the things that bring you the greatest sorrow then. And at that point, it's too late. At that point, it's too late. So I want you to know that there is great joy, a joy that's deeper than happiness over some prize that you got that will fade. But there's great joy when finally we come to the realization that despite our brokenness, despite our unworthiness, that we're rescued from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. That upon our confession of faith, that upon repentance and genuinely belief, genuine, genuine recognition to the lordship of Jesus and a following a pursuing, a chasing, chasing after him. We understand the Bible teaches if that happens, then we can trust that Jesus has become our substitute and that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be rescued from darkness and brought into the light, brought into the kingdom of his beloved son. So I would urge those listening to trust Christ. Now let me make some final application for us. We're not strangers to sorrow in this world. I mean, Jesus tells them they're going to have sorrow, but if we tease this out 2,000 years, we're going to continuously see sorrow, but there's still joy that we have despite all these things. Just look around you with all that's going on in our country alone. It's easy to succumb to despair. It's easy to become demoralized, frustrated, angry, so on and so forth. Being a Christian, no longer darkened in their understanding, means that we see the world as it really is. This is what I would call the burden of enlightenment. You and I see things as they really are. We understand that we're looking at something. We understand that there's a spiritual war that's being waged, that there's principalities, that there's very real evil. We understand those things. We're not the ones to so quickly chalk it up to something earthly or superficial, but rather we look at the supernatural. So we have this front row seat to the horrors of a broken world because we're not darkened in our understanding. You see, it's a tremendous grace of God that those who will die and be separated from him don't see it that way right now. And you better believe that's grace. 
because one day their celebration, their rejoicing will be what? Lamenting and weeping. With enlightenment comes facing the realities of darkness in this world. Again, I call this the burden of enlightenment. We also know now, we know our failures and we know what they mean. We know how woefully short we fall of the glory of God and this brings us sorrow. With every sin, we understand that we bear false witness. We do not represent Jesus well. We understand that with every sin, the profession and confession that we make doesn't line up with our actions. With every ugly thought, word, or deed, we discredit ourselves and falsely image our Creator, our Savior. We have to square up to the reality that living godly lives means that we'll be persecuted. All these things we square up to, we come face to face with because we have been enlightened. We have been shown through the gospel of Jesus because we've been brought from death to life that now we see what's really happening. You see, where someone else's mistakes of this world, they just chalk it up to a learning experience. And yeah, that may be true that we can learn from our mistakes, and we should, but we see it as a vile offense against God. Now we have joy because there's forgiveness, because there's redemption, because there's grace, but it doesn't remove the fact that we still have sorrow because we've grieved the heart of God. There is a burden to enlightenment for us. Even though we have joy that is tethered to hope, we still share a vantage point that shows us the reality of brokenness. For the world, they see that someone dies and ceases to be, whereas believers, we see that someone has died and potentially dies without Christ. That is sorrow. For the world, they look at abortion and they see clusters of cells or a life that has no worth or value. But for a Christian, we see murder, we see selfishness and the shedding of innocent blood. And we know that God, that God is just. And he will exact his judgment. And that brings us sorrow. Because we weep for the souls of men. We weep for the unborn. We see how their lives, by a world that doesn't know Jesus, how their lives are so expendable. And that brings us sorrow. The antagonist that screams at you because of your faith thinks that you're an idiot at worst. But the Christian looks at them as dead in their sins. An enemy of God and the object of God's wrath. That brings us sorrow. Just want to remind you that Jesus says their sorrow will be turned into joy. But he also makes this other promise. He says in verse 22, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So we experience sorrow. We can't get away from it in our families, at work, over and over. But at the end of the day, the joy that is rooted in the gospel, that's the joy that cannot be stripped away from you. And that's the joy that we need to tap into, that we need to pursue, that we need to cling to whenever all that's around us tries to steal our joy. And let me finish with this. Let me just throw some things out there. This happens all the time to us. We can't lose our joy but we can let things cloud our judgment and our reasoning so much that it's we don't enjoy that joy. We don't utilize it. We ignore that it's even there, and we succumb to all that's around us. We allow whether or not 
our sports team performs as we think they should to determine our joy. Now, I know that sounds silly, but it happens. I've seen a lot of people get really, really mad. There's a particular family member that's not a family member of mine anymore, but this person would become volatile if his college team wasn't performing. We allow presidential debates to steal our joy. We get frustrated and we take to Facebook and we show the world that we are so easily moved and angered by something that doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Things matter, don't get me wrong. But interrupting one another during the debate, we're not talking heaven or hell, right? We allow who someone is voting for to steal our joy. I can't believe they're voting for that person. You can disagree, but for that to steal your joy says something about you more than it does about them. We allow someone being a bad driver to steal our joy. Ever had road rage? Some of you. You get home and you're like, I was ready to punch that person directly in the throat because they cut me off. Stole my joy. Man, I have salvific joy rooted in the gospel that cannot be taken, and somebody pulls in front of me, unintentionally or intentionally, and it rattles me and throws me off of my game. That says more about you than it does about the person who cut you off. We allow a dirty house to steal our joy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say who that might apply to, but just saying I'm in a safe place today. These are conversations I have all the time. We allow kids to steal our joy. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. E-learning is the devil incarnate. And I'm working on it. I'm like, I'm not a teacher. Send them to Clayton. Send them to somebody else, you know, who can actually teach. And I get so frustrated. I'm like, you're all grounded until you're a 1,000 years old. I'm like, what? My joy's gone. I'm in a bad mood. Sarah has come home many days, and I'm just foul. And she's like, what has happened? I'm like, nothing. Nothing has happened. And now I'm mad at myself for that, too. Thanks a lot. And then I'm mad at her, and it's just a mess. You know why this happens? Because these things that rob our joy do so because they become idols in our life. And an idol does that. An idol tries to take from you what is promised to you. An idol lies to you. And an idol tries to take from you what can't be taken from you. And what a shame when Christ has secured our joy, when the ultimate joy has been given to us. And sometimes we so easily forget that. But there's hope, family. There's hope that God will make all things new as he's promised that God will vindicate his saints, and hope of such things should always bring us joy. You have been promised joy. You have been given joy that cannot be taken from you. It's a joy that's deeper and more lasting than some trinket or earthly treasure, but it's something lasting, meaningful, supernatural that originates from the heart of God and comes to fruition through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a joy that has been purchased for you by the shed blood of Christ. And no one can take that from you. So live in that joy. Because it comes from the heart of God. Let's pray and we can be dismissed. God remind us of the joy that we have. Help us to live in that joy. Help us to not become so. Derailed. By things that frustrate us. 
by things that vie for our attention that try to steal our joy. Lord, help us to be mindful of the fact that you've made us a promise that this joy can't be taken, that we can rest on the hope and the promise that we're given of our eternity and of what you've secured for us, and we can tether ourselves to that so that when anything else comes up, when all of these things come up that bring us sorrow, that bring us grief, frustrations, anger, Lord, that we are so tightly tethered to that, we're so tightly connected to that, that they fail in their attempt and efforts to derail us. Because when we're derailed, we don't exemplify Christ. We don't image Jesus rightly. And the world simply cannot afford for us to bear false witness. So help us to be faithful. Help us to not only have joy, but to express joy to all those around us. No matter what pandemic we're in, no matter what stressful school situation we might be in, no matter what's going on, help us to be mindful that we are representing you. And a way that we do it is through our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.